Three American service members are dead in Jordan and many more are injured after what the White House says is a drone attack by an Iranian-backed militia group. President Biden is promising to hold accountable the group behind the attack. For Sunday, January 28th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll have the latest on that attack, plus a close look at the Lebanese group Hezbollah and the role that it's playing in the Israel-Hamas war. Also, we'll look at what a second Trump term would mean for the economy. I understand what the former president's trying to do, but ultimately that would not help the population that he's trying to help. And with research showing that there are more non-religious Americans than ever before, we'll hear from a secular group that gathers on Sundays in Pittsburgh. We're just really a group of people who come together once a month or sometimes more frequently to just try to figure out how to be good people. First, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is responding to the drone attack that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan and injured more than 30 others. NPR's Tamara Keith reports it's the latest escalation from Iran-backed militants since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. Biden was at a campaign stop at Brooklyn Baptist Church in West Columbia, South Carolina, when he paused to reflect on the loss of life. It's a bit tough to hear. We had a tough day last night. We lost three brave souls. He asked for a moment of silence, and then when it was over, added, and we shall respond. The Iran-backed Islamic resistance in Iraq is claiming credit. Some Republicans are blaming Biden's Middle East policy for the attack and say the U.S. response must send a signal to Iran that this isn't acceptable. Tamara Keith, NPR News. A high-level meeting on the Israel-Hamas war has ended in Paris with no deal on a ceasefire or the release of hostages in Gaza. And here's Ada Peralta reports the meeting included intelligence chiefs from the U.S., Israel, and Egypt. The meeting was intended to jumpstart negotiations between Hamas and Israel on two issues, a ceasefire and on the release of the 132 hostages still believed to be in Gaza. The intelligence chiefs from the U.S., Israel, and Egypt met in Paris along with the Prime Minister of Qatar. In a statement, the office of Israel's prime minister said the meeting ended with, quote, still significant gaps. The hostages were taken from Israel when Hamas attacked on October 7th, leaving some 1,200 dead. The two sides reached an agreement for a ceasefire back in November, and Hamas released more than 100 hostages. Since then, however, the fighting in Gaza has not relented. More than 26,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to Gaza's health ministry. More meetings are scheduled to take place this week. In Pierre News, Jerusalem. House Republicans released two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports the House is expected to act quickly. Homeland Security Committee Chair Mark Green unveiled a resolution with two charges against Secretary Mayorkas. One alleging, quote, willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law, and one alleging breach of public trust. The panel is scheduled to vote Tuesday on the resolution. House Speaker Mike Johnson says the full House will act as soon as possible. The top Democrat on the panel, Benny Thompson of Mississippi, denounced the action as an effort to score political points. The House action comes as a Senate bipartisan group is expected to reveal details of their plan to reduce the record number of migrants entering the U.S.-Mexico border. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Drivers are being urged to slow down with the slick roads from the wintry mix that's been falling today. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the precipitation will turn to all snow. We'll continue to see mainly rain at the coast, some snow inland and a mix in between. With the change over to snow tonight, everything slowly winds down by tomorrow early afternoon. So the biggest impact will be on the commute tomorrow morning. Snow totals 6 to 8 inches north and west of Boston outside of 495, about 4 to 6, 128 to 495, around 3 inches or so in Boston and less south of the city, 1 to 3 inches on the south shore to an inch or so on Cape Cod. The Newton Teachers Association says it presented the school committee today with a new contract proposal. The union calls it a compromise to settle the strike. Six days of classes have been canceled. The city has not said anything yet about school tomorrow. Boston kids took advantage of a free city program today to sharpen their soccer skills. As WBUR's Eliana Marcou reports, it was a chance for them to get tips from a pro. Inside a dome at the Carter Playground in the South End, the 10 to 14-year-olds went through drills and scrimmaged. Coach Anthony Rouget says providing inner-city kids with opportunities in sports is a mission for him. Where I came from, in the streets of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, there was hardly soccer fields. And the opportunity came because somebody took the time to spend with me. And, and by God's grace, I'm hoping that I can do the same for someone else. Mom Emily Edwards thinks her kids got a lot out of the experience. This is an excellent coach who coaches really competitive soccer. So I'm psyched because it's actually going to really help my kids. The kids learned how to cool down and properly stretch, something some parents say their aspiring athletes are not always taught. For 90.9 WBUR, Eliana Marcoux. And again, uh, that mix of rain, sleet, and snow will change to all snow overnight, three to six inches in the north and western areas of Boston, and about three inches in the city and less in southeastern Massachusetts. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The White House says three American service members were killed and at least 34 were wounded in a drone attack on a remote military base in Jordan near the Syrian border. An Iranian-backed militia group has claimed responsibility, and this comes as several Iranian-backed groups have gotten involved in the conflict with Israel in recent months, including the Houthis in Yemen and the Hezbollah in Lebanon. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here with the latest. Hey, Tom. Hey, Scott. So where did this attack happen, and what details do we have at this point? Well, Pentagon officials say the attack occurred in northeast Jordan, right up next to the border with Syria. It's a support base called Tower 22, and it looks like an attack drone hit a living quarter. So the U.S. is saying, again, three dead, and now we know 34 are wounded. I'm told many of them have traumatic traumatic brain injuries, uh, mm -hmm. concussions. Now, two were seriously wounded, one with a spinal injury, another with shrapnel wounds, and these numbers are likely to change. Now, an umbrella group of Iranian-backed militias known as the, as the Islamic resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility. And of course, there have been more than 140 attacks by these militias against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria since last fall. But these are the first deaths, Scott, and mm -hmm. there was one American service member seriously wounded a few weeks back by an attack in northern Iraq. He took some shrapnel to his head, 
and was sent back to the U.S. for treatment. But again, these are the first Americans killed. You said Tower 22, this base is a support base. What exactly is it supporting in Jordan? It supports a base inside Syria called Al-Tamf, just a few miles from the Jordanian border. That's where U.S. special operators and some from other countries have been stationed for years now. They were part of the effort to train Syrian opposition forces against the Islamic State, uh, launch counter-ISIS operations, and it also sits on the highway linking Baghdad with Damascus. And U.S. forces uh, keep an eye on Iranian supplies heading into Syria to support the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Now, that Al-Tamf base has come under a number of drone attacks as uh, well from these militia groups, but they've pretty much all been shot down. But back in November, uh, a service member from a partner nation suffered a minor injury from a drone attack. So these attacks have been happening, but this is, as you said, the first deaths, and, and that's, that's obviously very significant. We know the Biden administration does not want the, the war to expand, but, but what happens now? Well, you know, it's hard to say. This appears to be the most U.S. casualties in Iraq since at least 2011, when five U.S. soldiers were killed by insurgent forces. The U.S. has stepped up attacks in Iraq in response to the recent uh, militia attacks, you know, striking missile sites and facilities, trying to avoid casualties, Mm -hmm. and again, being careful not to widen the war into a regional conflict. But there are calls now for tougher a stance, especially from some Republicans. Uh, Already, Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, the top Republican on armed services, said, quote, we must respond to these repeated attacks by Iran and its proxies. Get this by striking directly against Iranian targets and its leadership. Yeah, and that would... Uh, And of course, uh, President Biden, for his part, simply said, we shall respond. He said that in a statement this morning, again, uh, speaking to reporters earlier this afternoon. We will see when that response takes place. That's NPR's Tom Bowman. Thank you so much. You're welcome. America's foster system is in crisis, and Texas's network is among the most troubled. For more than a decade, Texas has faced federal action over what plaintiffs call a broken foster care system. And a federal court is now weighing whether to impose hefty fines over the state's inability to make progress on court-ordered reforms. Paul Flav of Texas Public Radio has the story, and as a note to listeners, it does include a description of self-harm. The signs of past abuse are unmistakable on Brittany Pollock. I always get judged for my arms. The 18-year-old's left arm is covered in scar tissue from hundreds of self-inflicted cuts. For me, people didn't want to keep me or feel like people didn't want anything to do with me because I look like I'm insane. But in all reality, we're not insane. We just are looking for somebody to love us. Pollock says the cutting helped her cope with past trauma from an abusive family and with being in foster care the past four years. Since she was 14, Pollock says she spent her time being shuttled between treatment centers and psychiatric hospitals, often changing doctors and medications each time never finding stability. So now more than a dozen placements and 230 different medications later, she says the state's child welfare system is a lie. I feel like it's a lie because they say they're trying to protect us. They want to keep us safe. They want to make sure we're we're being taken care of, but we're not. Her cycle often led to having no place to go and being labeled a, quote, child without placement. That means being warehoused in taxpayer-funded hotel rooms with other kids. 
At one point, there were more than 400 children a night. Pollock spent months in them, months eating fast food or a sandwich for each meal, being squeezed into a two-bed room with three or four caseworkers paid to watch them. While at the hotel, the state often offered no psychiatric treatment or other services. And after some hotels started throwing foster children out over their behavior, state staff cracked down even more. Then it got to the point where we couldn't go nowhere. We had to stay in our hotel room and not move. We were, like, locked in there. Like, a CPS worker would literally sit at the door. So, like, we couldn't get out either way because then technically we're putting our hands on somebody and we're ending up in jail. Children without placement hotels exist because Texas doesn't have enough places for children like Pollock, ones with high mental health needs, to go. Federal court monitors call these placements dangerous, noting in its reports times when kids got assaulted, ran away, or were sex trafficked. And for more than three years, what was supposed to be a temporary placement for kids has often lasted for weeks or months. The state says it has cut the numbers of children without placement in half, but it's still more than 100 kids a month. It's cost $250 million over three years. There's so much waste. Attorney Paul Yetter represents current and former foster youth in the ongoing federal lawsuit against Texas' system. There is no coherent plan to fix the problem. The state is just dumping buckets of money on a shadow system that is hurting children. Yetter says this shadow system is a good example of how Texas has failed to reform. Texas is a big state, and state officials can't just snap their fingers and fix it. But, he says, for much of the last 13 years, it hasn't been trying. But has instead been aggressively refusing and opposing reform. So we have a big system with lots of problems, and we have a leadership that is just not willing to work cooperatively to get it fixed or to find solutions. A federal judge agrees. Good morning. Okay, would you call the case? Yetter points to a hearing just last week showing the state's uncooperative attitude. It's nine o'clock. It's nine. It's after nine. Where are the documents? I need them in hand right now. This is Janice Jack, the federal district judge overseeing court-ordered reforms of Texas's foster care system. The state was ordered to bring documents showing what efforts it made to fix the placement issue. Did you bring the documents? The state's attorney didn't have them. Judge Jack threatened contempt. Have you ever seen inside of a jail cell? She agrees to give the state more time, but later her frustration boils over. Judge Jack calls the bureaucracy that produced these ongoing failures horrible. You know what year this is? This is 2024. How long have we been wrestling with this problem? But conservatives like Texas State House Representative James Frank allege the lawsuit itself causes some of the problems it's railing against. The federal judge is the arsonist claiming there's a fire. Representative Frank says the federal lawsuit wastes money and resources, and it's scaring away scarce treatment providers that could care for these kids. Basically, nobody wants to work with the state of Texas on high-risk kids because you are going to end up under the thumb of the judge if you do. Texas argues its foster system has shown significant progress on many of the court's orders and is substantially in compliance. In coming weeks, Judge Jack will decide if they actually are. The system is still clearly in crisis, says Christy Carrington, a retired family services worker who now works for the state employees union. It's not safe for anybody. That's one of the reasons people are fleeing the department. One in four caseworkers leave within a year of being hired. Keeping children safe is our job. That's the only reason we exist. And if we're not doing that, then we might as well pack up and go home. 
She says the lack of progress is astounding, and she questions if state leaders can spend billions erecting barriers on Texas's southern border, why can't they fix this? The governor can do it. He does all kinds of stuff. You can't tell me he can't do something with this if he doesn't, you know, if he truly wanted to. He does everything else. Raise a wire in the rivers and, you know, what about these children? Texas is not the only state to deal with legal fights over foster care. Alabama, Mississippi, and Kansas have all dealt with federal oversight. Many still are. 18-year-old Brittany Pollock's time in Texas foster care went straight from a child without placement hotel to county jail. Like many kids with high needs in the program, she broke the rules. And a worker said Pollock hurt her when she tried to take away the girl's phone. Pollock spent two weeks in the Brazoria County Jail for a misdemeanor. She says Child Protective Services was so bad that she would have rather stayed with her abusive family. Because we didn't ask to be in CPS. I didn't just tell CPS, hey, take me away from my abusive family. All we want is a family. And when we're not getting that, it hurts. Now living in a private group home, Pollock is free of the department. And tattooed over the hundreds of cutting scars on her left arm in dark cursive black lettering is the word survivor. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. All that mixed precipitation we've been having all day long will change to all snow overnight. Snow tomorrow about three inches in Boston, six to eight inches north and west of the city, and far less accumulation in southeastern Massachusetts, the Cape, and Islands. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com Well, as primary season begins, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee has concerns for the integrity of the 2024 election. We'll talk with him tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. So start your week right here with us tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. At least three U.S. service members were killed, more than 30 injured, in an unmanned drone strike on their base in Jordan near the Syrian border. Islamic resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility. President Biden called the attack wholly unjust and vowed to hold all those responsible to account. In Paris, two female climate activists splashed soup on the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum. The famous painting is protected by bulletproof glass, and the painting itself wasn't touched. The two women then made statements about the French farming system as farmers there continue protests. And Iran says it launched three satellites into space today, raising concerns about the country's ballistic missile program. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Throughout his time in the White House, former President Donald Trump loved to brag about how much, according to him, he was doing for the economy. From the instant I took office, I moved rapidly to revive the U.S. economy, slashing a record number of job-killing regulations, enacting historic and record-setting tax cuts, and fighting for fair and reciprocal trade agreements. That was from Trump's final State of the Union address in February 2020, which was probably, in many ways, the high-water mark of his administration. Since he had taken office, employers had added more than 6 million jobs. Unemployment had dropped to a low 3.5%, and the stock market had soared nearly 47%. No president has total control of the economy, of course, but that never stopped Trump from claiming credit. Our agenda is relentlessly pro-worker, pro-family, pro-growth, and most of all, pro-American. But in a few weeks, it would all come crashing down as the coronavirus spread rapidly throughout the world. Here's Trump addressing the country from the Oval Office back in 2020. From the beginning of time, nations and people have faced unforeseen challenges, including large-scale and very dangerous health threats. This is the way it always was and always will be. It only matters how you respond and we are responding Lockdowns with great aimed at speed stopping the virus threw nearly 22 million people in the U.S. out of work and sent the stock market into a freefall. Trump and his supporters like to gloss over that last part, focusing instead on the sunnier first three years of his time in office, the good times, which Trump insists he can restore if he's granted a second term. Starting on my first day back to the Oval Office, I will end Joe Biden's inflation nightmare, rescue our economy, and we will do one thing that's going to work very quickly and fast. Drill, baby, drill. We're going to drill, baby, drill. With Donald Trump now poised to capture the Republican presidential nomination, we are going to drill down on some of the specifics of what a second Trump term could look like. A few weeks ago, we looked at the Department of Justice and how much pressure Trump could put on the courts and the criminal justice system. And today, we are going to look at economic policy, policies like tariffs, which were a big part of Trump's first term when he launched trade wars with China and many of America's allies. He has suggested that he would like to go further in a second term, telling Fox Business that he supports a 10% tariff on all imports, no matter where they come from. I think when companies come in and they dump their products in the United States, they should pay automatically, let's say, a 10% tax. Mm -hmm. That money would be used to pay off debt. It's a massive amount. Trump is also campaigning on extending tax cuts that Congress passed in 2017, even though they contributed to a ballooning federal deficit that topped a trillion dollars a year before the pandemic. I will make the Trump tax cuts permanent. Some of Trump's economic policy is straight out of the traditional Republican playbook, like his support for fossil fuels or his push for deregulation. But much of Trump's economic agenda carries his own signature stamp. 
It's more populous, more nativist, and more unpredictable. NPR's Scott Horsley covered the White House during the first two years of the Trump administration, and he now covers the economy as a whole for NPR, and he joins us now to take a deeper dive into what a second Trump term could mean for the economy. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. And it's always good to have you and talk to you. And let's let's start with trade, which really hovered over so much of the the first Trump administration's economic agenda. Trump was so aggressive about imposing tariffs when he was president. How did that work? And what might we expect in the way of trade policy if he comes back to the White House? You're right. Tariffs were one of the former president's favorite tools. Uh, he used them to punish bad behavior, as with China, and also as a bargaining chip to extract concessions from friendlier trading partners like Canada and Mexico. Some of those other countries fought back against Trump's tariffs with retaliatory import taxes of their own, uh, and that tended to hurt U.S. exports. Trump's goal with a lot of the tariffs was to protect American jobs and American industry. Uh, But while taxing imports did cost China some business in the U.S., it didn't necessarily help workers here at home. Mm -hmm. Other countries like Vietnam and Mexico generally picked up the slack instead. Now Trump is talking about building an even higher wall around the U.S. market with a 10 percent tariff on all imports. Paul Winfrey, who served in Trump's Domestic Policy Council last time around and now heads the Economic Policy Innovation Center, thinks that would be a step too far. I understand what the former president's trying to do, but ultimately that would not help the population that he's trying to help. It would raise prices and ultimately people would be worse off. You know, the trade wars in Trump's first term often backfired economically, but they did have a lot of political appeal, especially for people who feel like they've been left behind in the global economy. As a result, we've seen significant movement in Trump's direction on trade over the last seven years or so. Right. And what are some examples of that? Well, for example, President Biden has left most of the Trump tariffs in place, and he's also added some of his own protectionist measures, despite protest from some of America's longtime trading partners. Mary Lovely is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, which generally promotes free trade. She is dismayed by all this, but acknowledges Trump has really reshaped the debate. The conversation has absolutely shifted. The gains from trade have clearly been discounted. I think that the gains of protection to workers in the economy have been vastly overstated. So let's shift now to taxes, because Trump and his Republican allies in Congress, even though they weren't able to do other things like like uh, repeal Obamacare, they did push through a big tax cut in 2017. Parts of that law are set to expire next year. So when it comes to taxes, what is at stake in the presidential contest? Yeah, the tax cut was one of the signature accomplishments of Trump's first term in office. Uh, It slashed the corporate tax rate from 35% all the way down to 21%. It also cut individual tax rates. There is disagreement about how much that spurred economic growth. GDP did grow faster the year after the tax cut was passed, but that growth spurt didn't really last. Most of the benefits of the tax cut went to wealthy families, but regular folks might have enjoyed a little bump in their take-home pay. The tax cut certainly did not pay for itself, as its backers had claimed it would. You know, the government collected less money in taxes than it otherwise would have and had to take on trillions of dollars in additional debt. In order to keep the overall price tag in check, lawmakers wrote the law so the individual tax cuts would expire next year. 
what we know from experience is it's awfully hard for Congress to unwind a tax cut once it's been passed. That's why William Gale, who's co-director of the Tax Policy Center, says most of the individual tax cuts are likely to be extended no matter who wins this year's presidential race. Why? Because the Republicans want them extended. Biden has a no new tax increase on people with income under 400000 So I'm guessing the changes for people in the bottom 95% of the income distribution are going to go through. And maybe the Democrats make a heroic stand against the top 1% or the top 5% or something like that. That's pretty much what happened when the Bush tax cuts expired more than a decade ago. By the way, extending the individual Trump tax cuts would likely add another 3 or $4 trillion to the federal debt over the next 10 years. And that's a good point. Then-Vice President Biden played a key role in extending those Bush tax cuts at that moment. Uh, such a big part of Trump's agenda the first time around and now in this third run for the White House is, is his opposition to immigration. Here he was in Iowa earlier this month. As soon as I take the oath of office, I'll terminate every open border policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. When it comes to the policies Trump is pushing on immigration and the way he talks about immigration, there are obviously a lot of different things to talk about. But let's talk about the economics of it right here. Yeah, Trump's anti-immigrant sentiment is finding a lot of allies, not only among Republicans, but also some Democrats. Uh, Certainly no one is happy about the current situation at the southern border. It's important to remember, though, during his first term, Trump not only tried to build a border wall, not paid for by Mexico, by the way, but by U.S. taxpayers, he also cracked down on legal immigration, you know, suspending the issuance of green cards and work-based visas, Uh, even though as an employer he has relied on immigrant workers, both at Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster. I'll just say the rebound in immigration under President Biden is a big reason the U.S. has managed to keep growing the economy and adding jobs without putting more upward pressure on inflation. Last year, for example, the foreign-born workforce in the U.S. grew by 5 percent, while the native-born workforce grew less than 1 percent. We're talking about, on one hand, you know, tax cuts, which is a traditional Republican uh, point of view. But on the other hand, this really protectionist policy, which goes so much against of, of what the Republican Party was for, for several decades in recent history. How much has Trump reshaped the Republican Party and Republican economic policies? You know, some of the things Trump advocates are straight out of the traditional GOP hymnal, you know, cutting red tape or promoting domestic energy production. These are policies that would have been very much at home in a George Bush or even a Mitt Romney White House. But in lots of other ways, Trump has gone his own way, more populist, less libertarian. And a new generation of GOP lawmakers has followed him on that path. Back in 2016, nobody was really prepared for Trump to win the White House, including Donald Trump himself. So at least at first, he had to surround himself with a lot of conventional Republican people and policies. Orrin Cass, who heads the conservative think tank American Compass, thinks a second Trump administration would look very different from the first. Donald Trump coming in in 2016 sort of had Paul Ryan plans on the shelf. And eight years later, I think you have a, a fairly deep bench of folks who really do want to take the Republican Party in a very different direction. Now, Cass is quick to add that Trump is not exactly a disciplined politician. So any predictions about where he might go are, are risky. But it's safe to say, at least in the early years of the first Trump administration, the president was at least somewhat constrained by all the establishment types around him. Mm-hmm. 
if there is a second Trump White House, you're not going to see those guardrails. Uh, Trump is likely to surround himself with hardline loyalists who will empower him, not stand in his way. And if that happens, then we'll see what a full flowering of the Trumpist agenda might look like. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks so much. You're welcome. Mars just got a bit quieter now that the whirring blades of NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter have fallen silent. The tiny craft was about the size of a tissue box with four spindly legs and a set of blades that generated a booming rumble. Well, after dozens of flights over nearly three years, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson had some sad news. It is bittersweet that I must announce that Ingenuity, the little helicopter that could, and it kept saying, I think I can, I think I can. Well, it is now taking its last flight on Mars. Nelson said the reason for the retirement was a damaged rotor blade. The chopper landed on the Red Planet in February 2021, stuck to the belly of NASA's Perseverance rover. A few months later, it lifted off for its first flight. The elevation was modest, just 10 feet off the dusty surface. But by chopping its way through the thin Martian atmosphere, Ingenuity became the first aircraft to make a powered, controlled flight on another planet. It was a simple, humble flight, but it meant the world to all of us because we'd done it. We had accomplished our mission. We've checked the box. And from that point on, everything was sprinkles on top. Project manager Teddy Zanetto said Ingenuity had the computing power of a nearly decade-old cell phone. It was only meant to take five flights, but the chopper kept on going. Ingenuity completed 72 flights, climbed as high as 79 feet, and soared a total of 11 miles. In fact, it proved reliable enough that it took on a new mission, scouting the path ahead for its sibling on the red planet, the Perseverance rover. And it scattered a path for future Mars missions, too. The purpose is for future generations here to run with it and be able to scout, be able to do science, be able to carry important payloads and ultimately help the first astronauts that get to Mars. Sanetto says that while he and his team will miss ingenuity, their work is far from over. We have an acronym that we've been using throughout all these years and all these flights called WENDY. We're not dead yet. (laughs) Ingenuity proved to us, okay, we're going to get to the end of mission here, but we're still not dead yet, and she's still alive and healthy. She'll never be able to fly again, but we'll get all the data we can, and she's done a remarkable job. So farewell, Ingenuity. Mission well done. This is NPR News. In Ecuador, thousands of gang members have been arrested since the government declared a war against criminal groups over three weeks ago. All this follows a violent uptick in gang-related activity that culminated in gunmen taking staff hostage during a live TV show. Reporter Jorge Valencia explains drug-fueled organized crime has reached unprecedented levels in Ecuador. Ecuador is officially in armed combat with gangs. In a video released by the military, soldiers with rifles barge into a prison and order inmates to line up in their underwear and sing the national anthem. 
Ecuador was once a haven safe from the violence of its neighboring countries. That started to change some 20 years ago. Authorities in neighboring Colombia, with help from American taxpayers, made it a lot harder for drug traffickers to send cocaine straight to the United States, says Hugo Acero, former security secretary in the Colombian capital of Bogotá. Eso hizo que los narcotraficantes colombianos buscaran otras salidas. Which forced drug traffickers to look elsewhere. De ahí que tanto Colombia como Perú, o sea, las mafias, encontraron salida de sus productos. De so Colombian and Peruvian drug mafias sent a lot of their drugs where? Ecuador, Acero says. Often they're hidden inside banana shipping containers sent through the Panama Canal to Europe. Mario Pazmiño is former intelligence director with the Ecuadorian army. He says that in the last decade, there was another major change. Y ese nuevo proceso es que el país se convierte en un país de procesamiento. That's when Ecuador became a country where cocaine is processed from leaf to final product, Pazmiño says. As cocaine processing and distribution grew, so did the presence of transnational criminal groups. Básicamente tenemos el cartel de Sinaloa. Basmiño says the Mexican Sinaloa and Jalisco Nueva Generación cartels have presence in Ecuador, as do Italian and Albanian mafias. These groups pay Ecuadorian gangs. The biggest is Los Choneros. Yo, Adolfo Macías. And it's headed by the man making this video from inside prison. In fact, Adolfo Macías made a lot of videos from prison. In this one, a uniformed officer stands by, and you can hear four other men putting down their pistols on a table. Macias was offering a truce with other gangs in Ecuador. Then earlier this month, he escaped from prison and a wave of violence swept the country. Speaking on a local radio show, President Daniel Novoa said authorities had been planning on moving Macias to a more secure prison and that the ensuing violence was no accident. Novoa has officially labeled 22 gangs as terrorist organizations, deployed the military, and declared an internal armed conflict. Overall, the military approach hasn't worked, but neither has much else. Yoan Grillo is the author of a trilogy of books on organized crime called El Narco. He says that as authorities in Mexico and El Salvador have aggressively gone after criminals, they've systematically violated the human rights of the broader population. In Ecuador, President Noboa has overwhelming support, at least for now. There is certainly danger going forward of, you know, massacres by the military or, or other things. But then again, he's got very few options. Human rights observers in Ecuador say they worry a military approach will exacerbate the violence. Civil servants are already paying a price. The other day, one of the prosecutors investigating these newly labeled terrorist groups was gunned down in his car. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia in Bogota. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. And the rules that have, at least to a degree, protected the safety and freedom of journalists are being violated around the world and nowhere more so than in Gaza. That's coming up next on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Mixed precipitation will change to snow overnight. 
about uh, three inches in Boston, six to eight inches north and west of the city, less to the southeast. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard, back with free public arts events every Thursday night starting January 25th. harvard.edu slash artsthursdays. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Paris, a meeting with the intelligence chiefs from the U.S., Israel, and Egypt on the Israel-Hamas war ended with no deal on a ceasefire nor the release of hostages in Gaza. More meetings are scheduled this week. The U.S. and China meet in Beijing this week as the U.S. pushes China to stop its citizens from making and shipping the ingredients that go into fentanyl, a deadly opioid that's killed tens of thousands of Americans in recent years. And at the weekend box office, Amazon MGM Studios' The Beekeeper took the top spot with an estimated $7.4 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at MadeInCookware.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. As the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza continues, there has been growing concern about it spiraling out into a much broader regional conflict. That's especially true after the White House announced today that an Iranian-backed militia group killed three U.S. service members in Jordan with a drone attack. Another area where things could escalate is Israel's northern border with Lebanon, where there's been an ongoing trade of rocket fire between the Israeli military and Hezbollah, a powerful Shia Islamic militant group based in Lebanon. To learn more about this group, its history, and their role in the conflict, we called Runda Salim. She's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and when we spoke earlier this week, she began by telling me how the group formed in reaction to Israel's occupation of southern Lebanon in 1982, in the midst of Lebanon's civil war. And then they started playing a role in fighting Israel in the southern zone, which was occupied by Israel after the war ended. But Mm -hmm. then Israel decided to keep a security belt along uh, the border with Lebanon. After the Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in uh, 2000, Hezbollah said we still have disputed border issues with Israel and then used that as a basis for continued military resistance against uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. However, since their formation in the 80s, you know, and their announcement in a public letter of their, you know, organization in 1985, Uh, Hezbollah started entering Lebanese politics. And so it's not only a military group, uh, you know, it's also become 
part of the, I mean, it had members elected to the parliament, still yeah. has. And, 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 and let's, let's talk about that for a moment, because, you know, often America and other Western countries focus on those military operations. Uh, it's designated as a terrorist organization by many Western countries. But it's often, you know, referred to as a state within a state. It is a key player in, in Lebanese politics. How does it balance its military and political goals? And, and what do we need to know about that role that it plays within Lebanon? Hezbollah is now also a member of the cabinet. In 2005 was the first time when they decided to have ministers in the Lebanese cabinet, and they have had ministers since then. But for Hezbollah, the priority has always been to preserve its military role as a sub-state actor within the state of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And politics has always been used as a means to maintain its independent military status. And how has the longtime leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, and other Hezbollah leaders responded to the war over the past few months? Like, Because there was a lot of talk early on, will this immediately become a, a wider regional conflict? And that is still a key concern today. But so far, at least, it seemed more relatively limited to these, to these, these missile strikes and back and forth. We have not yet seen that, that wider uh, second front of the war fully open up. Yes, their response has been a tit-for-tat, incremental, proportional response to the Israeli attacks on Lebanon. In few speeches he has given since the start of the Gaza war, he said the primary objective of their involvement, of the escalation, is to support the people in Gaza, but also is to, in a way, force Israel to agree to a ceasefire in Gaza. But he has also said that they do not seek to expand the war, but if they were forced by Israel into an all-out war, then there will be no limits to the kind of measure they will be taking. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah has close to 150,000 precision-guided missiles, and Nasrallah said that there will be no limits to the kind of targets we will be seeking if Hezbollah has been fought by Israel into an all-out war. Yeah. And the fact that Iran backs Hezbollah, that's an important factor, especially as we look about the possibility of a widening regional conflict. Iran, such a, a key player in, in, in that context. What else do we need to know about the relationship between Iran and Hezbollah at this moment? Hezbollah was founded with the help of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Uh, I mean, they were the ones who trained the first cadre of Hezbollah fighters. They were the ones who provided it with weapons and financial support for a long time and still provide some, although in the, in the recent years, Hezbollah has been seeking to diversify its funding streams and become independent. But over the years, the trust level between Hezbollah and Iran has become so high that uh, when it comes to, um, you know, Lebanese domestic politics, Iran really lets Hezbollah play the leading role and does not get involved in their decision-making. But when it comes to issues of peace and war with Israel, when it comes to issues like any kind of opening with the United States, if it were ever to happen, then they have to make those decisions in consultation with Iran, and especially in consultation with the Iranian supreme leader. You know, Hezbollah is not in itself a Palestinian organization, right? So, so why exactly is Hezbollah so linked to the Palestinian cause? Hezbollah is definitely a Lebanese organization. And all its fighters, all its leadership are Lebanese. Uh, but from the beginning, uh, the mission of Hezbollah has been 
resistance against Israel and against what they define the U.S.-led order in the region. And, you know, we're talking about the relatively limited nature of the the military exchanges at this moment. You said you expect that to continue. I guess I have another follow-up question there. Given the way that, that Israel seems really vulnerable in this moment and, and the Israeli government in particular really under a lot of pressure, really increasingly unpopular, why do you think Hezbollah is is thinking about keeping this limited, wanting to keep this limited? Why doesn't its leaders use this moment to go on the offensive in your mind? Because of the Lebanese domestic context, Lebanon mm-hmm. is suffering for some time now from a dire economic crisis. And they yeah. believe that an all-out war with Israel will be catastrophic for Lebanon on top of these economic conditions they are living under. And so that's why, I mean, it's a Lebanese actor. Hezbollah is a Lebanese actor. It's still an actor that has to be constrained by the domestic political context in which it operates. And it is a domestic political context right now that is opposed to an all-out war with Israel. That's Rhonda Sleem, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Once upon a time, a teenager set out to beat a world record. He wanted to see how long he could stay awake. And 60 years ago this month, he set the Guinness World Record for sleep deprivation. Here's NPR's Ashley Montgomery. It's December 1963, and the Gardner family has just moved to San Diego. The oldest son is a 17-year-old named Randy, and as the new kid in town, he's determined to make a splash in the city science fair. I was a kind of a science nerd when I was young. This is Randy Gardner, speaking to Shankar Vedantam, host of Hidden Brain in 2017. I'm a very determined person, and when I get things under my craw, I can't let it go until there's some kind of a solution. He wants his entry in the 10th annual Greater San Diego Science Fair to be big. What if he tried to stay awake as long as possible, and then test how his body and mind respond to sleep deprivation? He enlists two friends to take shifts and make sure he stays awake. I'd say it didn't really hit me until about the third day, and then... I noticed that in the morning, I was really nauseous. And this went on for just about the the entire rest of the experiment. I mean, it was crazy. You you couldn't remember things. It was almost like an early Alzheimer's thing brought on by lack of sleep. But Gartner stays awake. Five days go by, then six, then a full week without sleep. The experiment attracts the attention of Stanford sleep researcher Dr. William DeMint and a medic at the nearby Naval Hospital. DeMint drives to San Diego to help monitor Gardner's health. They throw around a basketball and play pinball together, and even without sleep, Gardner is still able to play. I did good. I think I beat him most of the time. Finally, on January 8, 1964, 60 years ago this month, Gardner's experiment ends. He managed to stay awake for 264 hours. That's 11 days. A new Guinness World Record at the time. And after the experiment, Gardner finally gives in to sleep. I slept just over 14 hours. I remember when I woke up, I was groggy, but not any groggier than a normal normal person. Gartner and his friends won first place at the science fair that year. His experiment remains one of the most well-documented cases of sleep deprivation. In his 2017 interview with Hidden Brain, Gartner told NPR that he now suffers from insomnia decades later as an adult. About 10 years ago, I stopped sleeping. 
I could not sleep. I would lay in bed five, six hours, sleep maybe 15 minutes, then wake up again. I was a basket case. It's unclear what triggered his condition, but Randy Gardner says he sees it as some kind of karmic payback for his science experiments 60 years ago. His Guinness World Record for sleep deprivation was later beat in 1986 by a guy who stayed awake for nearly 19 days. But due to the health risk of sleep deprivation, Guinness World Records no longer keeps track. Ashley Montgomery, NPR News. People with no religious affiliation now make up nearly a third of the U.S. That's according to the latest data from the Pew Research Center out this past week. The group is called nuns, as in none of the above. It's a bit of a wide net comprised of atheists or agnostics and also people who say that even if they believe in God, they have no particular religious affiliation. And while this group is growing, they are less likely than their religious counterparts to be civically engaged and socially connected. But some nuns have found a way to create community without religion through secular meetups and organizations. And one of those groups is called Sunday Assembly. We are joined now by Kelsey Derringer, the vice president for Sunday Assembly Pittsburgh. Kelsey, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. So for people who haven't heard about it before, how would you describe Sunday Assembly? Well, Sunday Assembly, we are we describe ourselves as a secular community that celebrates life. Mm -hmm. So we are not atheist. We are not agnostic. We're not dogmatic. We're not religious. We're just really a group of people who come together once a month or sometimes more frequently to just try to figure out how to be good people without turning to ancient religious texts to do so. So we're trying to be good people and trying to figure out how to do that well. Tell us a little bit about your community. Who comes out? Yeah, you know, that's one of my favorite things about Sunday Assembly. There is a lot of age diversity and diversity of background and life experience. So um, a lot of people in Pittsburgh, and I bet this is in a lot of big cities all over the country, there's a lot of people who live here who aren't from here. So I'm originally from Iowa. My family's all back there. And so when I moved here to Pittsburgh, I needed to make friends as a grown-up. <laughs> That's like really it's very hard. hard. It is. It is. It's really hard to make friends without like after-school clubs helping you do that, right? <laughs> um, and so Sunday Assembly is sort of our answer for doing that. I mean, is it is it tricky in any way to come up with a central theme and come up with shared values when there's not that theology at the center, when there's not that core starting point that you know a church will start from? We all believe in this. Yeah, that, that's something that we did early on as a community. We came together to decide, okay, what do we believe in? And so we believe in radical inclusivity, that everyone here is welcome. Um, and we have sort of a list of, of core beliefs like that. But I wouldn't in any way call those dogma, because also we go over those and we um, check in with them frequently. And so what do we do if no one's telling us what to do? Is actually not that much of a problem, because there's lots of great texts out there that are sacred to each one of us. Maybe your sacred text is Harry Potter and my sacred text is Hamilton, right? We can find a lot of inspiration for how to live well um, just based on the things that have impacted us as individuals. I know that a lot of Sunday assemblies do kind of end up mirroring the structure and format in many ways of church services. Does, does Pittsburgh's? Um, in some ways, yeah. Sometimes we've described ourselves as like, Instead of a sermon with worship music, we're like a TED talk with karaoke <laughs> instead. So, you know, our, we'll do some sing-alongs at the beginning and at the end and maybe have a, a song as a performance in the middle somewhere. 
But we do sort of mirror that structure for a couple of reasons. One, um, there are religious people who come to Sunday assembly. So we only meet one Sunday morning a month and there are people who go to church on the other three Sundays, but they like coming and exploring some of those same questions and themes in a secular mm -hmm. way with us. Um, but also, uh, well, I guess uh, three reasons total, because second, there are a lot of people who come to Sunday assembly who are used to finding community on Sunday mornings, but they don't share those beliefs anymore. Yeah. So they're kind of like programmed to be extroverts on Sunday mornings and they're looking for a place to do that. Um, but also, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> like humans like coming yeah. together, hearing from somebody who's thought deeply about something. Humans like coming together and singing together. Humans like coming together and laughing and checking in on each other periodically. So like we're doing what, you know, homo sapiens like to do. We're just doing it without the dogma, you know. That gets to one of the more interesting findings in the latest research. It's something I mentioned in the introduction that uh, people who do identify as none are less likely to be civically engaged and socially connected. What did you make of that finding? And and does that trend, if you take it at face value, does that worry you at all? You know, I wasn't surprised by that personally, because we live in a very like isolating time. It's difficult to go out and find a place to be with other people that doesn't center around like drinking or partying mm -hmm. or work or kids. So that doesn't surprise me for the population. But I would say that Sunday Assembly, the people who attend, I would say are more likely than other people that I know to be civically minded. You know, we, we have like three tenants. We try to live better, help often, and wonder more. And with that help often piece, we often do some kind of a service project. So they organize a group of a few people to go out and clean up one of the rivers here in Pittsburgh. And so like whatever our people are passionate about, they bring that to the group. And oftentimes they say, man, I'm so glad that there's this group here because otherwise I'd be doing this by myself and I don't know if I'd do it. Mm -hmm. But when you can get a little group together to do it together, like that's one of the best ways to 